Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Talking Feds began as a show for federal prosecutors and an effort by feds who were regularly on TV to get beyond their sound bites and try to explain with more detail and nuance and back and forth what was going on in the Mueller investigation and other federal criminal settings. And we still go back to basics every three months or so, convening a group of experts with deep knowledge of the workings of the department to assess what's been going on there from their insiders' perspectives. It's always one of my favorite shows to do. And today is particularly well-suited to that topic, because in the last three months, and certainly since the Attorney General made a speech assuring the public that the department would follow the January 6th investigation wherever the law and facts lead, there's been intense focus on and some impatience about what is happening inside the big brown building at 9th and Constitution. Has the department branched out from the January 6th rioters to zero in on the political officials, up to and including the former president? What is the department's overall investigative strategy? Is it coordinating its work with the work of the House Select Committee, and if so, how? DOJ is famously buttoned down in its work, especially under Merrick Garland, but it does give off occasional pulsar emissions that we can try to read with the help of experts who have spent years inside the department or reporting on its inner workings. Each new revelation from the media or January 6th committee, such as this week's reports of Trump's brazen and systematic violation of the Presidential Records Act, gives rise to a new series of speculations about how it's playing and what's happening within the department. So, to decode the few signals we've received, and to fill in the rest with the most educated guesses available, we have a squad of crackerjack DOJ veterans and observers. And they are Katie Benner. Katie covers the Department of Justice for the New York Times, as everyone knows. In 2018, she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for public service for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. Previously, she worked at the Times San Francisco Bureau. Before that, Bloomberg View and Fortune Magazine. Thanks, as always, for joining Katie Benner. Thank you for having me. Next, Paul Fishman. The head of Arnold Porter's Crisis Management and Strategic Response Team, a member of the firm's White Collar Defense, Commercial Litigation, Securities Enforcement, and Appellate Practices, and those many different assignments are nothing new for him. He has done it all at DOJ, a line prosecutor, a first assistant U.S. attorney, a senior official, and basically the boss of Maine Justice when I worked there and walked in fear of finding him in the halls, and the U.S. Attorney for the District of New Jersey from 2009 to 2017. It's been a while. Very good to see you back, Paul Fishman. Well, Harry, thanks for having me. I feel like an OOG of this podcast, having been present (laughs) at the pilot. So thanks for having me again. There at the beginning. And this is sort of our Back to Basics periodic show. And finally, Andrew Weissman a professor of practice with the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at NYU Law School. Like Paul, he has a very rich and varied background at DOJ, line prosecutor, supervisor, and senior official. He served as lead prosecutor in Robert Mueller's special counsel's office, and his book on the experience is entitled Where Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation. He was the chief of the criminal fraud section in the DOJ from 2015 to 2019. And before that, he was a, I think it's fair to say, storied line prosecutor in the Eastern District of New York. Welcome back, Andrew Weissman. So nice to be here. All right. So I think this period, we're in our 90-day report card at DOJ, and I think it's marked by Merrick Garland's speech to commemorate the first anniversary of the insurrection Remember, he's under increasing pressure at the time to defend the department's investigation, even though it's the biggest in FBI history, and parry the criticism DOJ is moving too slow. So he discussed how much they had done, but then more importantly, the headline, 
said the Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6th perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. So let's start there because we haven't convened since then. A lot of people took immediate comfort in that statement that the department was going at least to look at the involvement of everyone everyone up to the former president. Was that an overread on their part? No, I don't think that was an overread. I think that let's just take a step back. Many of the things that the Trump administration did and the former president did in the weeks and months leading up to January 6th were very public, public calls to overturn the election in some way, or to at least cast doubt on the results, despite things that Trump's own officials had said. So there was this sense that a lot had happened in public already, and it would be absurd for the Justice Department to not at least take a look at the public record and see if there was something more to be done. However, because it's Merrick Garland, he would never say such a thing. He was completely silent, and it was making people incredibly nervous and anxious that DOJ was simply doing nothing. So I don't think it was an overread. I think that he very much genuinely wanted people to know the department was going to act and be responsible. And then a week later, they came out with the sedition indictment against the head of a militia who was not in the building in the Capitol on January 6th, seeming to underscore what he just said, which is we will look at people at any level, even people who are not there in the building to see what role they might have played in the incident. So, Andrew, Paul, do you agree that they can't close up shop without at least taking a hard look past the level of the insurrectionists at the Oval Office? I'm somewhat less sanguine than Katie. I think this statement was sort of a masterful job at saying nothing because it didn't actually commit to doing anything other than what you're supposed to do, which is follow the facts and the law as high up as possible, which, by the way, is responsible. But it could have been said at the outset of the case. I thought the timing was clearly motivated by what was going on and the anniversary. Getting to the substance, I am somewhat skeptical about how much is really being done because in these types of large, very public political corruption type cases, you would likely hear about it, not because the government is leaking, but because you would be interviewing so many people. And at least the reports are that you're not hearing about interviews by the department of senior people in the way that you are hearing about efforts by Congress And then the second piece would be, it's certainly unusual if there were that investigation going on at DOJ to have simultaneous investigations in Congress, because I think as everyone here knows, those can really be fraught with peril when when that's not coordinated. Yeah, so we'll come back to the speech, I'm sure, because I think actually what he said later in the speech about the disquiet in America and the intemperate nature of speech and activities on planes and in school board meetings and in other stuff was actually what he really wanted that speech to be about. And I think that was an important, very important statement coming from him. And one that I think people wouldn't necessarily have expected from an attorney general of the United States, particularly from Merrick Garland. But I do think also his speech reflects a very complicated tension in the Department of Justice always about when you talk and when you don't talk. He said something that was really quite traditional, and he said it in his testimony before Congress at his confirmation hearings. He said it in his testimony later in his oversight hearings. There's stuff I just don't talk about. There's stuff that we shouldn't talk about as a department. We don't investigate in public. It's not fair to people. It doesn't help witnesses. All the stuff we usually understand. And the overlay, by the way, is what Jim Comey did with the Hillary Clinton stuff about when people right. talk too much. But what's interesting about this is the two cases that the attorney general handled personally that were of most notoriety his life, or Oklahoma City and the Unabomber. And both of those are in the category of cases in which the department actually talks a lot about what's going on. When there are issues of terrorism in particular, but not just terrorism, 9-11 is a good example, Panama 103 is a good example, Oklahoma City, Unabomber, they talk. And they have to talk because, one, they need leads from the public. And two, the public needs to be reassured about when it is and isn't safe to be places. They need to know that law enforcement's on the job. The same norms have now really come into the civil rights arena, right? When there's a police shooting, the department will announce that it's doing an investigation. 
And sometimes they even issue some reports about what's going on. And it happens in the civil arena too. What I found interesting about the speech is that it almost was combining those two strains, that this is a situation that he himself recognizes is not ordinary. And there is the need to say something more than you would say in the ordinary violent crime investigation or the ordinary white collar investigation, because the public does need to be reassured. And in some ways, the rest of his speech kind of reflects that what happened on January 6th is not just about what happened on January 6th, but reflects an underlying existing threat throughout the country that has a terroristic implication to it. And I think it was very important that he said that, and that's why he gave that speech to That's a really trenchant point, I think, and it's consistent with Garland. And the policy, as you say, it's not simply that they be safe, but people be reassured. And sometimes it tells you about what the department's thinking. So Lisa Monaco recently actually said, as an exception to the policy, we are looking into and investigating the whole forgery stuff, which I thought was noteworthy. I want to follow up on something Andrew said. He didn't, of course, say we're undertaking anything now, which people want him to do, but that we would going forward. I think we're well positioned to at least make some suppositions about how things work inside the department. It's become standard to say no one knows what's going on. But Andrew suggested, look, if they've gotten up to a certain level, White House or officials, we probably would know it. What generally happens, one does find out about it typically, I think, through witnesses or subjects who come out and talk. But do you think it's the case that if there were an investigation that had moved past the level of insurrectionists and up to the political level, we would, in fact, know it now? I think you'd be hearing something, and here's why. Not for the ordinary reasons that things just trickle out, but I think that if people in the core of the Trump inner circle, or even relatively close to that core, were being interviewed by the FBI or people like that. Ordinarily, people don't like to share that information because it makes them look bad. But in this circumstance, I'm not sure at all if that's how they would react. I think that they might think that there is considerable political hay to be made by pointing to the Garland Justice Department and the Biden administration as behaving exactly the way that they accused the Trump administration and Bill Barr of behaving. And so ordinarily, do people like to keep that secret? Sure, if they get interviewed, but maybe not here. And that's why I think you're more likely to hear about it. And they'd be talking, of course, to Katie Banners of the world. So, Katie, what's your thought about, you don't have to tell us who's talking, but it is kind of crickets out there. I think Katie should tell us who's talking. You could just use initials. That's a different podcast. (laughs) Right. That's true. People people do want to know. That's the thing. Reporters, we always say you don't have to answer the question, but we just have to ask it. (laughs) Prosecutors never say that. (laughs) I think that Paul is right. I 100% agree. If there were subpoenas happening, they would be fought in public. And if there were interviews being requested, Can you imagine a world in which the FBI wanted to talk to somebody like Rudy Giuliani and he didn't say so and he didn't hold a press conference about it and he did not tell all of his favorite reporters? Clearly, especially going into the midterm elections, the idea of an investigation into any former administration official, into any person in the Trump inner circle would be a big deal. It would become a midterm issue. It would be possibly the best thing that could happen to a variety of candidates. And I think this is one of the reasons why this idea of a criminal investigation into members of Trump's inner circle, members of his family, or Trump himself vis-a-vis the final months of the Trump administration is so perilous for the Justice Department. There is no way in which it is not a political tool, particularly for people who are able to very effectively use the idea of an investigation in their favor. It's a witch hunt. It's a prosecution. It's a persecution. And that is something that I think DOJ would have to contend with in this case. And of course, DOJ, Paul's just mentioned where they can talk and they have a lot of power, but one way which they are disadvantaged, by and large, they can't be pairing each of those statements in the press as they're made and be in the war of words. Andrew knows what this is like. (laughs) What are you referring to, Kitty? Enron. (laughs) (laughs) Just one thing about Lisa's statement. It was said in a context when you get a referral, which I've gotten from Congress. So there is a requirement to look into it. So for her, she actually could make that statement again, I think very much to Paul's point, 
that she could adhere to clear Justice Department guidelines, but without actually revealing anything that shouldn't be revealed, just to say we are taking it seriously and going to look at it. And so it is a slightly different context when you get that public referral from Congress. So it's, there's nothing particularly secret at that point because Congress is saying that. And I wonder if the January 6th committee won't change the game here a little bit. Paul and I talked about this before. So if the committee does refer something to the Justice Department, that gives the Justice Department a little bit more leeway to talk because obviously that would be public, but it also disadvantages the department. If the referral isn't strong, then they have to explain to the public why it did not result in an indictment. And I think those are both pretty tough things for Garland to deal with. I've gotten referrals that are strong and not strong. And it, yes, obviously you have to respond and you want to make sure that you've done a thorough job and taken it seriously. But I don't know that it puts you behind the eight ball as long as you've, you've handled it responsibly. Generally speaking, at least before the Trump administration, there's very good relations usually with the committees that are doing the referral so that Sometimes you make a case and they're very grateful and you're grateful to them. And other times it's very clear why you can't. But it doesn't mean that it was improper or wrong to make the referral. Can I ask Andrew a question? I know Harry's your show. No, no, no. Always welcome that. The rules aren't that clear, right? If they refer contempt, that you actually have to look at. So that's the Meadows thing, which we'll come back to Harry's question. But it's not true that just because Congress refers something and says it's criminal, because Congressmen and women write letters every day saying, oh, my goodness, it's an outrage. Please investigate. And I'm not sure I know the rules as well as you do on this particular point. Just getting a letter is not a referral. So, for instance, during the special counsel investigation, there was a public referral of a person signed by both the majority and minority of the committee, which was very helpful. So it was bipartisan. And that was a formal referral with this is what happened, this is what we think you should look at. That, again, doesn't mean you're going to open a case. There has to be an independent judgment. But those kinds of things would be taken quite seriously. Now, even letters, though, that you get, as you know, you look at it and make sure and you you look for the substance. But a letter is a very different thing than getting a formal referral. I have to say the formal referrals that I have gotten in my career I actually have found them to be thoughtful. Not always enough. No, not always enough, but they're not required to refer only when there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. There's something where there's a factual basis to cause considerable concern. And then your job at the department is to make an assessment about whether it warrants being investigated. All right. I want to repeat that I think the headline on the current state of play is we probably think They haven't yet reached, and if indeed they ever will, the level of Trump and Circle. First of all, ordinarily, it's an anathema for the department to have Congress investigating factually in this kind of detail, something that the department thinks might be worthy of criminal investigation, because obviously they're operating at breakneck speed on the committee. I can't remember what the statistics are that have been reported. I'm sure Katie knows exactly what they are, but they've spoken to hundreds of witnesses and done lots of other stuff. Ordinarily, prosecutors and agents like to go very methodically, as the attorney general pointed out in the speech. I'm sure they're doing the best they can. The staff is ably chaired by Tim Hafey, the former U.S. attorney in Charlottesville, who's a very experienced prosecutor. And so I'm sure they're doing that. But at the same time, it's just not the regular order for an investigation. And then they're going to take public testimony starting in April, I think. And public testimony always changes the, the nature of investigation. So the downside is other people are doing the work that the department would ordinarily like to do itself. However, it does give the department the enormous advantage in this situation of getting a very developed record of what people might have done and what they might not have done. So if a criminal referral or multiple criminal referrals come in April or in July, the department's going to have a lot of stuff to chew on starting then. And that may ultimately save them a lot of time and also may make it easier to start investigations because they're not just starting based on innuendo or based on things that have been reported in the press, sorry, Katie, but based on a developed testimonial record. And that makes a difference, I think. All right. And we'll return to the public testimony problem. I wanted to follow up on something you just said, Paul, about the kind of broader public 
policy or really social-wide division that may have motivated the attorney general's speech. And here's the question. Thinking back on January 6th, I think a lot of people might have thought, I sort of did, okay, we dodged a bullet or a cannonball or whatever, but at least now we are done with this. And surprise, surprise, a year later, if anything, the risks look greater. We have Trump promising to repeat if he runs. And the kinds of dangers that he posed not only haven't gone away, but have increased. How can a Department of Justice take stock of that kind of clear and present danger? Does it fall to the attorney general, maybe in consultation with the White House, to actually consider the real risk to the deepest values of the country that the former president continues to pose. So I think this is one of the challenges for Garland is that right now that is falling to the Justice Department. The public largely, for the people who think that Trump did something wrong, remember, we're talking about a segment of the population. For the segment of the population who believes that Trump acted inappropriately, if not illegally, They are looking solely to law enforcement to solve the problem, to bring consequences to bear and to make things all better. And there's some reasons for this. We're not seeing a lot of legislation happening. We're not seeing anybody else really in authority addressing what Trump did with the exception of the committee and then the Justice Department. However, is the Justice Department really going to be able to address the issue that Trump poses, this sort of threat to democratic principles? Even in a world where the Justice Department does prosecute Donald Trump, which I find to be highly unlikely, but that's just my opinion. That's not something I'm saying based on fact, just my opinion. Even if that were to happen, how does that stop the bigger problem of a lack of faith in democracy, of a belief that you can flout the rules, of a belief that you can become elected, whether or not you're particularly qualified? It doesn't really address the problems that you just enumerated, Harry. And so by putting all of one's faith in the Justice Department, it sets the Justice Department up, I believe, to fail or to at least have some sort of public loss of faith. And it doesn't solve the issue. And I think this is one of the reasons why in the speech and in other speeches, Merrick Garland has continued to come back to the idea of voting rights and protecting voting rights. So even in the January 5th speech, he says, we're going to do a lot of things that we're supposed to do, including robustly protecting the right to vote to make sure that elections are free and fair. We saw that a big part of the preamble to January 6th was for a variety of players trying to overturn the Electoral College results and trying to use established rules in order to do that, trying to flout established state rules in order to do that. And now we're seeing state legislation being passed that makes that even easier. So I think Garland is saying, I'm actually not the backstop. The backstop is the election and we have to protect that. It's hard for him to make that connection explicitly because of his role and who he is. But I think that is one of the takeaways. We're putting a little bit too much on the Department of Justice to make things all better. I totally agree with you, but it's not sort of an either or. One of the parochial things that happens at the department, or at least in the cases I've been involved in, is all of those societal issues and what the public may be thinking and the problems that this may be helping and the problems that this could be exacerbating, you just sort of go, wait a second, that's not my job. Those aren't the issues. Even here. Yes. Even here. It's like you keep your head down. It doesn't matter if bringing the Enron case is going to help or hurt certain people or politically help or hurt certain people. There's just a very sort of narrow view, at least at the line levels of sort of just following the facts and law. Obviously, it's a lot more precarious at at very senior levels. And then the only other point, which is a little bit more parochial that I wanted to make is one of the things that I find surprising, and this is maybe given my Mueller training when I was at the Bureau, is the complete lack of a postmortem about how January 6th was dealt with. When the Bureau in the past had problems, and it's of course had many, there would be independent commissions, there would be people brought from the outside to really do a deep dive into what did the Bureau do, what could it have done better, what are all of the facts, 
it wasn't just sort of kicked to saying, oh, well, the inspector general will come back in 17 years with a report that's not particularly helpful in terms of elucidating it, which that's a little unfair, but it does take forever. And sometimes it really doesn't get to the point given their limited jurisdiction. And I just think there's so much to look at in terms of how the intelligence community and law enforcement responded to January 6th, particularly when you compare it to the Black Lives Matter response several months earlier, and a deafening silence about accountability in terms of what happened. So that is interesting. And I think one of the valid criticisms internally of Garland is that part of what happened did involve the Justice Department and that there could be a review done of the impact on the department that not only the previous administration had, but those last few months of the administration. There could be some sort of top to bottom review and there could be a robust discussion of safeguards beyond things like reissuing the White House contacts policy. And there was a wish and a desire for that. And that isn't happening even there at the department that's being tasked with bringing consequences to bear. I just wanted to ask Paul and Katie, so do you agree with Andrew's assessment that the basic that's not our department attitude obtains even in this kind of situation? Do you agree that the huge democratic sets of issues that just having him in society and as a possible candidate present will be set wholly to the side in the event, which we're all bookmarking as dubious to one degree or another, the department winds up looking hard at Donald Trump. Look, I'm not a constitutional scholar of free speech and where political speech and threats really intersect, overlap and divide. But the AG did, he set out, and there's one phrase in his speech in which he basically said, You can't wait for the threat to metastasize. The time to address threats is when they are made and not after the tragedy has struck. And I think that that's a combination of two different things going on in his head. One is January 6th, but one is Oklahoma City, because the kind of retrospective that Andrew was talking about was done a little bit after Oklahoma City. I was in the deputy attorney general's office at the time. And there are lots of questions about whether law enforcement was too conservative or whether the guidelines governing how law enforcement can behave when infiltrating groups that have the potential for violence was too restrictive. And the guidelines were relaxed in some way through an advisory memo that came from either the attorney general or the deputy attorney general to the FBI. And that's a constant struggle within law enforcement. You're seeing it play out a little bit now in the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping case in which it turns out, according to what I read in the press, I don't know more than that, one of the people who was most vocal during the planning was someone who was actually a government firm, right? So the question is, at what point can government launch and stop something, knowing that when something doesn't happen, it's often harder to prove that the intent of the defendants was to make something happen. Law enforcement is constantly struggling with that. But I think the way the attorney general phrased it was in the context of his speech about thinking about that threat more globally. And I think both as an intellectual matter, but also what does it mean on the ground at a school board meeting? When someone gets up at a school board meeting or a town council meeting and says, I'm going to wring your neck, I'm going home to get my gun, or you're lucky you're still alive, all the terrible things that are now become much more normal in public discourse in meetings like that and in places like that. Does law enforcement have an obligation to step in at that moment? That's different from is Donald Trump allowed in the context of pursuing his political career or his political agenda or simply his exercise in sort of a malevolent narcissism to talk about all the stuff that he says in a way that will rile people up, but is not necessarily itself actionable. And that's a much trickier problem, I think, and not necessarily one that the attorney general himself has a role. And maybe there are other political actors as Andrew and Katie are pointing out, who really have an obligation to call those people out. Maybe they're the president of the United States. I think also on the narrower point of whether or not the department should be taking into consideration the things that 
Paul just discussed, the larger political environment, these questions of social responsibility as they make a prosecutorial decision. I think Andrew's right. At the line level, I don't think people are thinking about that. They're just looking at the facts and figuring out whether or not there's a case there. Was a criminal statute violated? Certainly at the line level, for sure. But once you get up to the DAG's office and OAG, I actually think it becomes harder as a practical matter to make that kind of sharp division because you have to also start thinking about, is this a case we're just going to lose out of hand, for example? And once you start thinking, is this a case we're going to lose out of hand? You cannot not factor in things like the larger political environment. So say we do indict, say we do have a jury trial. Let's just think about the practical matter of finding 12 jurors who have not decided that Trump was either completely innocent or completely guilty. And the practical matter of how long a criminal trial would take and the practical matter of getting it through an appeal, which inevitably it will be appealed. And then what happens if it gets to the Supreme Court level? How many years have gone by? These are things that a responsible DAG or attorney general you would think about, and they are inextricable from the bigger political and social questions that are floating around the background that we've discussed specifically. So it's hard at that level. Really good point. A year ago or more, there was a pretty ready answer that I think was Biden's answer to a lot of this, which is let it pass. Let's not litigate the past. That easy answer is no longer available. It's just clearly no longer the case that one can say that the menace has passed and we can just put it behind us. When Joe Biden came of age as a public official, it was at the time of Richard Nixon's resignation, basically. And when Jerry Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, it wasn't a remote possibility, a 0% chance that Richard Nixon would try to remain on the public stage in a meaningful way. And I think when Joe Biden thought about this historically in that context, he probably thought, okay, the guy lost, it's over. There may be some lingering hostility, but everything he's saying is so crazy that he's just going to eventually be banished into the night. And of course, that's not remotely what happened. Maybe that's a, a historical misjudgment by the president, by the current president. And all of us, I think. Right. We all sort of thought that that might happen. Maybe that was wishful thinking, it turned out, on our part. So that's the first thing. The second thing I was going to say is the whole political calculus that Katie was talking about before that Andrew had also alluded to is why I've always thought that the best solution to this problem is a prosecution by the Manhattan DA's office for things unrelated to the ex-president's political life. A case where you can flash up on a screen a picture of how much the real estate is worth on Tuesday when he's trying to get a loan and a picture of how much it's worth on Thursday when he's paying his taxes. And it has nothing to do with that kind of episode. The other thing from that episode is that even in a situation like that, where Cy Vance, you know, lots of people think that the Manhattan DA's office is sort of the sine qua non of, of DA's offices. It's the largest. It has a very sophisticated jurisdiction. It has a very large talent pool. Even there, when Cy Vance, who was no longer the district attorney, was trying to figure out what to do with that case, he brought in somebody from the outside, Mark Pomerantz, who was one of the legends of prosecutorial and defense bar in New York. And so it shows you the way prosecutors think about stuff. They want to make sure in a circumstance like that, that they're doing everything right. So at the end of the day, the case plays out on its merits. I mean, think about the nightmare of bringing the case and it's an acquittal or a hung jury. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. And today we are discussing the shadow docket of the U.S. Supreme Court, which the court has increasingly used in recent years to issue important decisions. And to tell us about it, we're really pleased to welcome Chris Sullivan, an actor and producer known widely for his starring role as Toby Damon in the NBC drama This Is Us, for which he's received two primetime Emmy nominations. His early career was mainly on the stage, where he appeared on the original cast of the Broadway show Lombardi and in the long-running revival of Chicago starting in 2011. He's also appeared in shows such as The Nick and Stranger Things, So I give you Chris Sullivan on the shadow docket. 
What is the shadow docket and why is it so important? When we think about the Supreme Court, we mainly consider the important and controlling decisions they reach every year in 60 to 70 cases, including contentious areas such as gun rights and affirmative action. After the court agrees to hear these cases, the parties submit briefs. The justices hold oral argument, members of the court prepare painstaking opinions responding to the arguments and to one another, and the opinion is released to the public generally at 10 a.m. But the court often takes important action without doing all of these things. As a court of last resort, it receives numerous requests every year to issue emergency orders or summary petitions. A party seeking a temporary injunction, i.e. a temporary stay of an order while the courts below decide the merits of a case, may take the request all the way to the court. Or a convict about to be executed might make a final appeal for emergency relief to the court. When it considers these last-minute requests, the court typically will have only very limited briefing and no oral argument, and it will reach a decision in short order, often with a brief, unsigned rulings issued late at night. Thus, the term shadow docket, coined in 2007 by Professor William Baud. The decision-making by the justices occurs in the shadows, so to speak, without the transparency of briefing, oral argument, and full opinions. Every court of last resort needs to dispose of emergency orders, and these decisions have been around as long as the court. Moreover, in at least a few famous instances, such as Bush v. Gore and the Cambodia bombing case, the court has taken important action in its disposition of emergency orders. The reason we are hearing so much about the shadow docket these days is that since 2017, the court has dramatically increased its shadow docket rulings and has used emergency orders to push the law in certain directions, especially for requests by the Department of Justice for emergency status of lower court rulings. In important cases, it has granted emergency relief that seemed dubious. The court has not always explained its order's legal basis and may not even be clear to what extent individual justices agree with those decisions. A notable recent example of the use of the shadow docket in an important case was the 5-4 decision not to grant a stay in the case regarding SB8 in Texas, which let a ban on most abortions in the state go into effect, notwithstanding that it was patently unconstitutional under current Supreme Court law. The rise in the shadow docket means that there have been many more important decisions in which the court has issued major and far-reaching holdings without the hallmarks of transparency, accountability, and thoroughness that apply to their cases on the merits. For Talking Feds, I'm Chris Sullivan. Thanks very much, Chris Sullivan. Little known fact about Chris, he has also done voiceover work and is the voice for the camel in Hump Day, the popular Geico advertisement. All right, I'd like to try to bring our sort of specialized knowledge to bear on some concrete situations. Mark Meadows, it's been almost two months, no word. What's going on inside the department? Well, I cannot tell you what's going on inside the department on that case, but I will say we can use Bannon as an example of how that operated to perhaps give us a sense for why people are being extremely deliberate. Merrick Garland has said time and again that he really wants the field to do their work and to bring him their results and that he will support them. But that also means that he will examine it as closely as he would examine anything, which is, if you know Garland, very, very closely. Paul and I have have been on the side of that. Yeah. And he will pull it apart to see if the work stands up before he'll bless it. So if you are the U.S. Attorney's Office working on this extremely highly public, deeply political unfortunately for the prosecutors, deeply political matter, legally complicated matter, you are going to want to bring the most airtight argument you can possibly come up with to Merrick Garland because he and his counselors, almost all of them, I think, are former clerks when he was an appeals court judge, are going to rip it apart and make sure there are no holes because that is how they operate. You're going to take a long time. You're going to take a while. There's a advice of counsel I won't say defense, but in practice, a defense, which is that there really was no intent. And so I suspect those issues are being pulled apart. If you notice in the Bannon indictment, they sort of did a whole belt and suspenders to get around those issues to talk about big and small, how much was not provided so that even where there was maybe a potential 
issue in terms of what counsel had advised Steve Bannon that couldn't have applied to just not responding or not giving over documents that were clearly not privileged. So when I read that, I thought, oh, they actually have a strong case if you look at the whole picture. That they're probably making, right? They may well have been hearing from Meadows' lawyers and get submissions. Absolutely. Plus, if you're a Meadows lawyer, you look at that indictment and you figure out how to navigate so that you are not making the same mistakes. This episode of Talking Feds is brought to you by the American Constitution Society. I'm Russ Feingold, president of ACS, the nation's foremost progressive legal organization, committed to ensuring that the U.S. Constitution, our laws, and legal systems are forces for protecting our democratic legitimacy and improving the lives of all people. ACS is powered by our nationwide network of over 250 student and lawyer chapters engaging on national, state, and local issues. Right now, we are focused on diversifying the federal courts, building a progressive pipeline of next-generation lawyers, and advocating for Supreme Court reform. ACS is for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, because our laws and our courts impact all of us. You can learn more about ACS by following us on social media at ACS Law, or by visiting our website, acslaw.org. Be sure to also check out our podcast, Broken Law, about the law, whose interest it serves, and whose it does not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Zoe Lofgren says on TV, you know, maybe we'll consider giving immunity to Jeff Clark. You adverted to it earlier, Paul, but in the Iran-Contra case, we know the law out there means that there's a huge potential headache for the Department of Justice when a congressional committee gives immunity because they're going to have to show down the line that in no way, form, they have to show it by preponderance, but as to anything, no witness, no anything, no leads were uh, used from the testimony that had been immunized. What level of coordination on something like this do you think is happening or will happen before Congress would pull the trigger on something like that? First of all, my recollection is, Andrew again can correct me if I'm wrong, as he has many times in my life. It's a good role for him. And it's so much fun. Exactly. And it's so easy. But Congress must consult with the department before it does it, is my recollection. There's a process that it goes through to do that. But I can't imagine that if the department objects to it at some level, that the attorney general and the deputy attorney general won't be involved in that conversation, right? Congress can do it anyway, but it will force the issue at that particular moment for the department to engage. And I don't know that it will be tenable for them to say, just do whatever you want. Because the risk is, A, that somebody who they might actually think eventually have a prosecutable case against is somebody who has received immunity. Remember, immunity doesn't mean, we all know this, but but not everyone listening probably does. Immunity doesn't mean you can't be prosecuted. It just means they can't use what you say and they can't use any leads derived from what you say. It's a little more nuanced than that. The way Ollie North got off is because it was the same thing. He testifies in Congress and then anybody who hears it and in any way it affects their testimony that can take the right. prosecution, even though the prosecution didn't do anything to sort of take advantage. They walled themselves off fastidiously. If I were in Congress, I'd be saying, I want counsel for Jeff Clark to give me a proffer of what he knows and what he might say if truthful. And then I would turn to the department and say, if you're going to object. I want to know, assuming there's something there that is useful from an evidentiary point of view, I'd be like, okay, are you actually going to make a case or is this just fanciful? In other words, sitting there saying, hey, we might potentially down the road 17 years from now, seems to be my number today, make a case. I'd be like, you know what, this is actually of national importance and he has information that the public should hear. And that is going to trump, no pun intended, any sort of concern of your eventually, potentially making a case. Right. And if the department's not in a position because it hasn't really been investigating to actually do that, that ties the department's hands in saying, oh, no, 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 please don't do it. And that 
is not so great for them either. And what about generally? So, Katie, do you know, is there some kind of coordination? Is there someone at the department who's generally in touch with someone at the committee and they're trying to keep things coordinated and and not undermine one another and step on each other's toes? I think that the department is keeping tabs on the committee and through official channels, like what Paul has described, communications, of course, will happen. But this is a department that is being far more cautious about communicating with the White House and the Hill than ever before. People have certainly discussed it privately with one another and with friends, with reporters. It's, I would say, an unusual lack of communication between the department, the White House and the Hill, only because I think it's in direct response to the previous administration during which there was so much communication between the Justice Department and the White House, so much communication between certain legislators and the Attorney General's office that it was seen as completely undermining the department itself. And so Garland is extremely cognizant of this and you will not see a lot of robust back and forth. It will be official and only as needed. Excellent point. All right. One more practical, concrete situation before our talking five. It seems to me there's a different matter out there in kind and potential, which is the forgery gate involving the five states. Does that strike you as a potentially big deal that will be its own kind of sprawling case or does it sort of fizzle? Any instinct on that? My instinct when I saw that is that that is like a classic case where you're going to be able to dig in. Maybe you won't be able to make the case at the sort of first rung, but I would think that that's going to be pursued quite vigorously. And then the challenge in that case to me is seeing if people will flip. And so you get who is sort of masterminding this. But a lot of potential flippers because you have all these people out in the field, the head guy in India, whatever, is not going to be circling the wagons. And you have hard evidence to use. I think Andrew's right. It's in some sense, it feels for the moment like low-hanging fruit and maybe one in which the department can make a point about you can't screw with an election in this sort of very basic, easy to understand way. It's not like saying you should vote for different people. It's not like asking the legislature in the state of Pennsylvania to reject the state of electors. It's actual documents that are fake. And that has a different feel to it. And you had two states saying, "Mm, maybe we better not. The only sort of defense there is almost like, oh, it's so obvious. I wouldn't have done that if, if it were a crime, but that's not a very attractive defense. Right. All right. We are out of time except for a few seconds for our final Talking Five feature. It was just reported today. Maggie Haberman's book, Confidence Man, is coming out soon. And scoop today is that White House staffers regularly found wads of ripped up printed paper clogging a toilet in the presidential residence during Trump's time in office. So my question to all of you in your investigative hats is, if Trump didn't flush them down the toilet, what's the next place to look? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Five words or fewer. I was going to use a curse word. I'm not going to use it. But You're not going to use it because we're such a clean podcast. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I just wanted to make sure that the question was, where else might we want to look to figure out where the former president may have been trying to destroy evidence of his time in office? That was that year. Where he left the destroyed evidence. I just, first, can we just point out as a practical matter, <laughs> if these were printed out documents, him flushing down the toilet doesn't matter because they would have printed out on White House printers and electronic mm. copies exist anyway. And so it's all just sort of ridiculous. It's almost like a Coen Brothers movie rather than something <laughs> with real consequences because the things exist electronically. There is a real question. Who would direct this movie for sure? The Coen <laughs> Brothers is one is one candidate. They're my strong favorite. But yeah, I just, I really hate any question that asks me to get inside Donald Trump's head. It's a losing question. All right. Or much less toilet. Okay. Or his toilet. (laughs) And and a credit to you, Katie, that you don't know how to do it. Right. That's also (laughs) right. But my answer is they're in North Korea. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I'll not answer in the same way by saying in this special counsel investigation, one of the people we prosecuted his iPhone, we ended up calling it the toilet iPhone because when we finally got it, it was damaged because It was allegedly dropped in his toilet in England. 
Now, to Katie's point, guess what? There's the iCloud. And if you back up your information on your iPhone to your computer, there's other ways to get it. So trying to destroy something tends to only give the government evidence of consciousness of guilt. And as my supervisor said to me when I started the U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, we don't always catch the smart ones. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Paul's is the best, I think. I was going to say the, the bed in the Moscow penthouse, but I'll go with in Steve Bannon's trunk. All right. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Katie, Paul, and Andrew. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where you can see all of our past episodes. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters, as well as ad-free episodes. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for our Talking Five segment or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers... The Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez. Associate producer, Olivia Henriksen. Assistant producer, Matt McArdle. Sound engineering by Adam Macias. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Ria Cohn Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. And a quick shout out to Emma Maynard, who in her last year at UCLA Law School has been named the Senior Articles Editor of the UCLA Law Review. Way to go, UCLA. Way to go, Emma. Thanks very much to Chris Sullivan for his explanation of the shadow docket. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who recently celebrated his 85th birthday and who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>